Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back, listeners, to episode 363 of The Paleo View, where I am in Austin, Texas, with solid Wi-Fi. <laughs> Good morning, Sarah. Rant quality level Wi-Fi. Yes. We, I'm ready to rant, but also I'm super excited because I took a preview peek at our outline, and I think there's going to be some interesting cool stuff as well. So, um, I like to package up my rants with notes of positivity. We do like to bring a balance on the show. That is true. <laughs> How have you been? How's your camping? Uh, we got rained out the second night. So we ended up, um, we kept, we, we didn't. So I, I think I mentioned in our check-in show last week that I choose campgrounds based on no cell service. Like that's, that's a plus for me. But we realized uh, we hiked um, to the top of a mountain in the morning, and we had three bars at the top of the mountain, but like nothing in the campsite. Uh, but it was a good thing because then we saw the forecast. And so my husband and I were looking at it. And I'm like, well, it's rain we can handle. Like rain, we've got, you know, like a sports canopy we can put stuff under and, our, you know, like it'll be fine if it's rain. But we started looking at it. And we're like, oh, it looks like it's going to be thunderstorms. So, so well, let's let's keep an eye on it. And so then a couple of times during the day, we'd have to like drive up to the ranger station in order to get Wi-Fi in order to check the weather. But by, by the time I was like starting dinner, um, it was no longer like scattered thunder showers. It was like a band of strong storms with a straight line wind advisory and um, like severe, we- it was, we were under a severe weather watch and it was going to last like, 12 hours. So not only would we be sleeping through it, hoping that the tent is uh, waterproof, which we haven't tested that tent in the rain yet, but then we'd be packing up in it. And so we decided to have dinner and then pack up the site and go, which meant we were leaving. We left our campsite at 9 PM, which our listeners will know is my bedtime (laughs) and also past my kid's bedtime. And then we had to drive home in the dark, in the storm, Uh, And it was like, driving through that weather, we're like, yep, really happy we're not camping under a bunch of trees in this. This is good choice. Um, But it just meant that um, coming, like, we just, I basically lost all day yesterday. So we got back the night before to just, like, exhaustion. It was like, I felt hungover despite a 100% lack of alcoholic beverage, which is a very sad story to have a hangover without the, the fun the night before. Um, but we certainly like made use of every minute we had there. We went, we hiked up to a mountain and then we hiked down to a waterfall and, um, and we just like, you know, for me, camping is, I I choose places based on hiking and just being able to be in like really sort of 
only only the I mean there were bears right so it's it's not even tamed nature it's just full on nature <laughs> and um and you know the uh, to me like the f- food you cook over a campfire is the most delicious food ever so um we still even though we didn't get that that second night we still we still maximized we maximized the experience as best we could with with the weather not being particularly cooperative i I'm grateful that I have not had to deal with a major thunderstorm when we've been camping either. Like I remember going through it as a kid because that's how we vacationed. Um, and it's miserable. So, Oh no, I can remember I have more than once having to hold on to the tent poles in the middle of the night through a storm to make sure that the tent doesn't collapse on top of us. And I, you know, now I can look back on those memories fondly, but I wasn't keen on like reliving it with my kids just now. Like it just didn't, you know, there are certain things that when you don't know, like in ye olden days, we weirdly didn't have the internet in our pockets with our, by our forecasts for the next week. Um, but since we had the, the wonderful advantage of uh, advanced knowledge of weather phenomena, it seemed like making an educated choice was a good one. Also, my tent is not built for, I have a, I have a pretty, um, uh, let's say entry level quality tent, um, which when I was rounding out our tenting gear before my family decided to get camping seemed like a really smart choice. Cause I wasn't sure that I would get them all to like it. And now I'm thinking, you know, we'll try to squeeze like another year or two out of this tent and then we'll upgrade. But yeah, I, I, would, I don't think my tent, I don't think my tent is made for 70 mile an hour winds. Also, there were zero other tents in the entire campground, which I think is a really, really strong indicator that the weather was not going to be tent friendly. The only other people there had RVs. There was not one other tent in the entire t- camp- campground of 70-some-odd spots. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah, that means all the other tenters were smart. Well, I'm glad that you had fun and are safe mm-hmm. and are now here to rant with me on solid internet. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in Austin now. I am. And we got in late last night. So the kids saw the city lit up, but we haven't done anything. And it's early and I'm groggy because I wanted to get coffee from the flagship Whole Foods. Like I want to go to the grocery store with Finn and I want to do our our little grocery shopping. But I told them, I was like, honestly, we're not going to get that many groceries because there's so many places to eat here. So (laughs) many. I'm like, maybe we'll stop at picnic on the way because I haven't been to the picnic restaurant. Um, Mm. And so anyway, so I'm excited to explore here with the boys. It's going to be a lot hotter. We came from San Francisco where the elevation, I mean, um, Santa Fe where the elevation was like 7,000 plus feet. So it was very actually pretty cold there, like 67. Um, Wow. When we were eating dinner at dusk, I was like, I wish I had a sweater. So, um, yeah, the weather will be a lot different for them when they wake up today. (laughs) Realize Santa Fe was so high up in the mountains. I had no idea either. Um, And Matt was really excited because 
I love mountain deserts. Like that's, I think mm. my, my favorite kind of temperate climate. Um, if only it weren't for jumping cactuses and snakes, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, poisonous yeah. lizards and they're actually poisonous. No, they're venomous. They're venomous. They have, yeah, let's, my kids would be, they're not poisonous. They're venomous. My kids would have so, they'd overheard me say poisonous lizards. <laughs> they would have been so upset with me. Poisonous when you eat it. Venomous lizards. Let me just correct it for all of our, all of our young listeners who know the difference between poisonous and venomous. I do want to say just to give our listeners an update um, before we jump in that between Santa Fe and um, where were we before that? Goodness. Do you see what happens when you're in a new city every two days? We went through the national forest, um, the petrified forest, which has been on my bucket list my whole life. And it was just as exquisite and wonderful as I could possibly have imagined and so much more there was more geology and um, history in that park than I ever could have imagined and the whole time I was thinking Sarah and her girls would Mm -hmm. love it here Um, and we did a hike to Agate House which is a Pueblo recreation of a house made of of agate wood Yes, a petrified wood agate. It was so wonderful. And I had like this outpouring of emotions from having been able to hike out to it because it was two miles in the Arizona desert (laughs) in the middle of the day because we, it was sandwiched in the middle of our drive day. And um, I made it and I did it and my back held up and it was a long driving day and everything was great. And I just, I want to encourage anybody who's ever in that area. Like, even if it's not directly where you're going, take time and put that, go off the path (laughs) to get there because it was incredible. So, and it's not just what Matt and I didn't realize is it's not just petrified wood. It's, um, geological formations of all kinds, including badlands that Cole says were better than the Badlands National Park. Um, Wow. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. So I wanted to share that because I'm sure, 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 your family would love it. Um, So maybe that can be your next camping trip, not in the summer. (laughs) 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 Just fair warning on that one. Pretty hot in the middle of the day. So, um yeah, I wanted to just give a heads I'm up. I'm adding it to the bucket list right now. It was so worthwhile. I've been to Arizona a, ton of, a bunch of times, but never happened to be on that side of the state. And so um, when we were coming from Prescott, Sedona era, area, which is also in the mountains, going to Santa Fe to the mountains, we had to kind of like come down and then go back up. And so it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful day of views and driving and all of that kind of stuff. So, all right, but I'm not, we're not, ironically, despite how much we're talking about travel and camping and all of that hiking, um, we're here to talk about fad diets. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it is kind of a hard transition to do gracefully. Um, I think, I think we made it the best we can. It is what it is. But one of the questions that kind of kicked this off, and we do have 
formal question and information we're going to dive into, which I'm excited about because I didn't even know these things were a thing. I don't follow fad diets anymore because I follow a lifestyle of healthy eating, (laughs) but it's good to know these things exist and um, to address them. So I'm actually kind of fascinated by where our conversation is going to go. But the reason that I wanted to talk about this show today is because I have a very good friend who was doing keto before I left for the trip. I don't know what she's doing. And so she would like keep up with me and ask me questions or tell me what was happening in the keto world. And one of the things that she said, and she was genuinely asking a question, I was like, is that seriously a thing? (laughs) Um, (laughs) She was genuinely when I was like, listen, just please eat vegetables, whatever it is you're doing right now, just like think of vegetables as a vitamin. Like they don't even count towards whatever it is, like thing you're counting and doing, just add vegetables. I I promise they're good for you. Like I can show you studies, like whatever you need. And she said, but on the things that she's following and listening to, they talk about vegetables as being a problem because of the phytonutrients, the anti-nutrients that keep the other things that she's eating from being properly absorbed. And I smacked my forehead and then we talked about it a little bit. And I thought, I really want Sarah to address us because we've talked about vegetables so many times, but if that's something that's going around in the community as being a problem, I just want to remind people how very good for you vegetables are. Yeah. Um, And we could probably refer back to at least... 10 previous episodes like that are whole like series. <laughs> vegetable. F- we did do a vegetable series and then we did a bunch of different follow-up questions about different ask- different questions that people have about vegetables. This to me is, um, uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to use the word interesting instead of any of the other words that came and like fought to come out of my mouth at the same time. Because it is... Um, it's two things, right? So it's one is it's looking at things like phytates and oxalates as being somehow, um, somehow, you know, we had this conversation oh, probably five years ago on this podcast where um, the conversation came up about oxalates and this um, basic like urban legend that the oxalates and spinach would stop your body from a, from I would literally like leach minerals out of your body and, um, they don't, they don't stop you from absorbing minerals. They don't, they don't leach the phytates and oxalates don't leach any nutrients from your body. And actually what happens is you have bacteria in your gut that actually process oxalates, process, process phytates and liberate the minerals that are bound. So what these are is, they're compounds that create salts. So it's phytic acid and oxalic acid. It binds with a mineral. Um, and usually it's like calcium, iron, zinc. So like important minerals, minerals that we want to be absorbing. They bind with the mineral and while they're bound, they're not absorbable. Our gut bacteria not only um, like unbind them so that mineral is now in a highly absorbable elemental form, but then they also process and break down the phytic acid or the oxalic acid so that it can't rebind with something. And so having a healthy gut microbiome is like key to being able to absorb the minerals that are bound with 
um, phytic acid and oxalic acid to form phytate salt and oxalate salt. Now, there's plenty of other nutrients in even the highest phytate and highest oxalate uh, vegetables that will be absorbed without our gut bacteria there to help, right? So, so it's it's not even like, oh, well, I have bad gut health, therefore I shouldn't eat it. That's still not a thing. And the way that you grow those bacteria that help to break those down is by eating those foods, right? So um, the main bacteria, there's lots of different, right? Bifidobacterium and lactobacillus will break down all of these things. They're, they're pretty amazing um, genera of bacteria, but there's uh, one genus of bacteria called oxalobacter, and it breaks down oxalates, hence its super, super creative name. And um, it, the, where we get exposed, there's not yet a probiotic that uh, is approved, although there are some in development um, that are focused on oxalobacter because the reason why it's in development is because it can actually help reduce um, kidney stones. Um, so it, uh, for people who have genetic uh, predisposition to not being able to process oxalates, it's basically seeding the gut with the bacteria that'll do it for you. Uh, and there's lots of evidence showing that the more oxalobacter you have in your gut, the lower your risk of any kind of gout, kidney stone, any of those things. So oxalobacter, awesome. Where we get exposed to it naturally is high oxalate foods, right? So like organic radishes, turnips, spinach, um, like those uh, arugula, right? Those sort of like high oxalate vegetables. Um, it is like a, a basically an environmental exposure because that bacteria is sort of like naturally in those foods. So we eat those foods raw and eat those foods like organic without washing them. We're going to expose our guts and then eating those foods on a regular basis to like basically nurture that colony. So if, if the anti-nutrient in question is this like magnified concern over phytates and oxalates, um, there's no evidence that I mean, even eating oxalate-rich vegetables has been still shown to reduce calcium oxalate stone formation, kidney stones. So there's no um, science that would point to any kind of risk um, for, let's say, 4,999,999 out of 5 million people of eating these vegetables, right? There is this tiny, very, very rare um, genetic variant that might make those vegetables a problem. Um, and so, so part of what I find interesting is like this myth has been busted so many times and it just has legs. It keeps coming back. And I'm, I'm not sure how many times we can sort of like point to really high quality scientific studies that say, you know, uh, yes, there is a maximum that our gut bacteria can handle in terms of um, dietary oxalates and phytates. And that's one of the reasons why grains are not awesome. They're super high in phytates and it it's overwhelms the system. There's no nut or seed or vegetable um, when we're eating a paleo diet that, that um, we're going to eat in quantities that would overwhelm the gut as easily as when we're eating a grain-based diet. But even then, those are aren't the, those aren't the, even the anti-nutrients we're super worried about in grains, right? Like the, it's, it's other things than grains that are really a problem. Our, our, um, digestive system is, uh, with the virtual digestive organ of our gut microbiome are completely able 
to process these. So that's number one. And number two is this weird conflagration of the word phytonutrient and antinutrient. The prefix phyto means plant, right? Like, it, since when does it mean bad? The prefix, the prefix anti, yeah, anti is bad. The prefix phyto, 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 great. Phytoplankton made all of our oxygen in the atmosphere. We love the things with phyto. I, I'm trying to think of a bad phyto something. I can't think of one. Um, and so the idea that phytonutrients, when we have this huge, huge body of scientific literature showing us that a high phytonutrient diet is one of the most important um, aspects of, say, uh, reducing cancer risk. Also important for reducing cardiovascular disease risk, right? Most phytonutrients are incredibly potent antioxidants. So that means they're anti-aging, they're anti-inflammatory, they um, stop DNA from, from mutating, so they're, they're anti-mutagens, they, um, so they, they're reducing cancer risk. A lot of them can protect against depression, can protect against dementia, can protect against um, liver damage, kidney damage, right? So like the, the, the range of phytonutrients and, and their effects is spectacular. There's something like 12,000 different phytonutrients that have been identified. We've characterized a few hundred of them. But the one thing we know is this is there's two things in vegetables that are responsible for all of the health benefits from high vegetable consumption diet. One is fiber because fiber is uh, regulating uh, our digestive system and feeding our gut microbiome. And the other one is phytonutrients because of the huge range of benefits that phytonutrients have. And sure, there's a very, very tiny percent of phytonutrients that in isolation could have a negative effect, but they're packaged in this package with, right. Uh, there's like three phytonutrients in broccoli that have been shown to have negative health effects. But there's like 500 more in broccoli, including some of the most important ones, right? So like the whole glucosinolate family in broccoli that is responsible for all of the anti-cancer benefits that broccoli have. Um, that, that like, if, if you were putting these things on a scale, your like con level would be like completely at the top because the pros are so... So f you'd practically, you'd, you'd create a, you'd pr create a ballistic pendulum because your pros would be so heavy that your aunties <laughs> would throw the cons in a parabola across the room. I'm just saying that vegetables are really, really important. <sighs> that was a really nerdy, nerdy analogy, wasn't it? I could feel your passion there at the end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> love it. So. I think this is also an exercise in being an educated consumer of information and looking at the source of things. You know, we are in a day and age where people can put stuff on the internet. People can podcast about whatever they want to podcast and they can, you know, find a minute source that has a small reference to something and not tell you about the other side of the pendulum or they can just straight make stuff up and not even include a reference. And mm -hmm. so that is why we have spent the last six, seven years podcasting to educate you on how to find this information yourself. We're here, we share, but we also include source and reference information so that you can look into it yourself and 
can make educated decisions about the lifestyle you want to live because you know your body and its needs more than anybody else. So I would just say my thing with this conversation that I had with my friend was kind of like, but what, where, where does this source of information come from? You know what I mean? Like where, where did you, where did you find this? And let's look at that source as being legitimate or not. So as we have that in our mind, I think we have some good questions to move forward on. And Mm -hmm. I would say, if we don't cover the fad diet that you have in your head right now on this show, that's okay because you can be an educated consumer and you can go to that source and you can find out whatever it is they're referencing as being the the next great thing and do research or ask for references. You can also ask us questions and hopefully we'll get to it in the podcast <laughs> yep. um, or in social media or that kind of things. But we more than anything, Sarah and I both feel passionately about you being able to make these decisions and look into things yourself because we, we're not there with you every minute of every day, but we do want to educate you on how to look into these things to be educated and make educated decisions. Yes. And, and give you, um, the, the base knowledge to be able to evaluate whether or not something makes sense, right? Like, I, um, one of the things that I have been, this is now a slight tangent. I've been trying to incorporate into like my online courses, my live events. I've been trying to incorporate more curriculum that is related to like, just how do we evaluate science? How do we value science? Um, one thing that we'll talk about in an upcoming episode is the new paper that was, it was published yesterday, um, that showed paleo diets increasing TMAO production, um, because of a shift in the gut microbiome. And this is a really interesting paper. There's some really um, like actionable information in this paper. That it's, it's a teachable moment level scientific study. And I am fully anticipating, it's going to take me a couple of weeks to, to, to write a really thorough blog post about it. And we will definitely cover it on an upcoming episode of the show because I think it's really important to talk about the nuance. But I fully anticipate that between now and then, that there will be a bunch of um, people jumping in two sides of two different bandwagons, right? This paper is stupid because of whatever, and we're going to dismiss this paper. I've read the paper. It's not, it's not stupid. It's actually really important, um, and it's really important for us to talk about in the paleo community. Um, it is a, it's a very well done paper and it's, it's good. So, um, I want to encourage our listeners who are seeing, cause it's, it's going to hit, it's hitting mainstream media, right? Because the mainstream media loves any anti-paleo thing. So you're going to see people who are either dismissing the paper because they blah, 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 or blah, 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 or you're going to see, um, people bashing paleo, um, because of this paper, which is also, that's not what this paper tells us either. So we're going to have a really nuanced conversation. We're going to go through the methodology. We're going to go through the results. And we're going to go through the implications and what we can learn from this particular study. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, part, that part I'm trying to incorporate into um, how I write, how I, how I, you know, put together presentations, how I teach. But that's that skill of being able to go find a paper that answers your question, read the paper and understand the level quality of the paper. Like the reason why I'm so good at that is because uh, that is basically what a, 
a PhD in medical research trains you to do. That is the number one. I learned some lab techniques and I wrote some, you know, really I did some own like original research that was really cool and wrote some really high level papers too. The main skill um, that um, sort of biology research, research scientist type um, PhDs teach you is how to understand the body of scientific literature and be able to find, find the missing information to fit your own research into, right? So how can you expand human knowledge and not reinvent the wheel? And so um, what I, I want to also do with this podcast, and we're going to get into Jackie's question and sort of shift to the other side of the pendulum here, but I want this podcast to also be a place where our listeners can, A, ask us questions when the information that they're seeing is just too confusing and is requiring that level of training to be able to dig into the science. I'm always happy to do that, but also to, to give you the, the base knowledge that you need to be able to see something like, oh yeah, we should do this carnivore keto thing and, and go, wait a minute. I've heard at least 10 episodes of the paleo view that have expounded on the health benefits of vegetables, along with all of the blog posts and the, right, the, all the citations, my books, like all of the other resources showing all of the scientific research that says otherwise. So I'm really hoping that we can both answer questions directly, but also help you, listener, uh, to, to have a broad enough knowledge base to draw on to be able to at least hit skeptical, even, even if... Um, even if you still need additional information to dismiss something. Does that make sense? I am so skeptical. I'm all in. <laughs> Hit me with the questions. I'm ready. All right. So this is Jackie's question, which I think is the uh, just the most perfect um, connector to um, what we just talked about. Jackie says, what do you think of the paleo green diet, keto green diet, or the pegan diet? I have heard Dr. Hyman and Dr. Perlmutter talk about them as it relates to keeping the microbiome healthy and getting tons of low-carb vegetables and prebiotic fiber in the diet. And I am so excited to dig into this. So this is a few different variations of um, uh, recognizing, uh, say, limitations in keto. So we've talked about the problems with the ketogenic diet in uh, two previous episodes, uh, which we can link to in the show notes. Um, so both from uh, the perspective of adverse reactions and the, our actual physiological need for carbohydrates and insulin. Um, also, there was a, actually two papers published in early 2019 in the ketogenic diet. I, I don't believe we talked about this on the, on the podcast that showed very undesirable shifts in the gut microbiome. And I've written an entire blog post about this that we can also um, stick into the show notes for, for people to read, just sort of breaking down these studies and the, the particular strains that are um, undergrowing in, in keto that are really desirable strains that we really need versus also some of the strains that are overgrowing in keto, which are undesirable strains. And it's, it's um, something I've been talking about for five, six years now. Um, my deep concern about keto is that it's just not enough fiber, it's so low carb that it's um, extremely difficult to get sufficient fiber um, to support a healthy gut microbiome, but it's also low fiber diversity. So the only way to get keep your carbs that low and to get your fiber up is to eat 
a ton of leafy greens and leafy greens are, are wonderful and healthy. And there are, you know, people who are really doing that. They're doing keto with like 40 cups of spinach and lettuce and kale per day, um, in order to, to get all of those nutrients. Um, the, the problem is that our gut microbiome also needs this fiber diversity. So the types of fiber that are in root vegetables, in tubers, in mushrooms, in fruit, in, um, nuts and seeds, they all feed different strains. So it's not just fiber volume that we need. If it was fiber volume, we could just all have Metamucil and like, then we'd all be great. And that would be plenty of fiber for all of us. It, it just doesn't work that way. No, um, when you have a ton of Metamucil, everything is not great. <laughs> uh, also can attest to that from personal experience. Uh, Metamucil put me in the emergency room one day. Like, um... 17 years ago. It's an, that's an old story. Um, that doesn't need to be relitigated right now, but, um, yeah. So, um, it's not just about the volume of fiber. It's also about the quality of fiber and the diversity of fiber, which is why eating a lot of different fruits and vegetables and hitting those different families, right? So hitting roots and tubers, hitting cruciferous vegetables, which are independently beneficial for the gut microbiome, hitting mushrooms, hitting leafy greens, um, nuts and seeds, uh, different fruit families. So apples, uh, the apple family, which includes like apples and pears, quince, I think are in the apple family, uh, citrus and berries are all independently beneficial for the gut microbiome, uh, dark chocolate, tea, um, coffee. They, they're all actually beneficial for the gut microbiome and they, they, in different ways because they have different things that help the gut microbiome in them. And so we really actually want to be hitting as much of those. And yes, I just put dark chocolate into the category. So everyone should like me right now. Um, hitting all of those things at least every couple of days, right? Hitting the full list because the gut microbiome composition can shift dramatically within two to three days as the result of a, of a dramatic diet shift. So we, we really want to be maintaining all of those strains. So I, I, this is like a big thing with keto is that it, it just doesn't, the, the entire framework and I'm not talking about its therapeutic benefit for, um, neurological and neurodegenerative disease, right? Like that's, that's a completely different, different, uh, category. And we've talked in all of our shows, we are talking about keto for weight loss or keto for conditions that have not been validated in the scientific literature. So we can definitely um, separate that out because there is this therapeutic benefit. And I'm not talking about those people. Those people are doing keto under medical supervision, and they're doing a lot of different things to try to mitigate the adverse effects, and they've done a different cost-benefit analysis. So what's happening now that this research is out showing that keto has all these problems, um, there's two things happening. Again, there's some people who are dismissing every single paper that shows that keto might not be great, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of science to dismiss. And then there's other people who are looking at it and going, okay, well, how can we, how can we get the, um, I'm using air quotes around the word benefits of keto, and um, how can we then, how can we then mitigate the detriments. And so that's what, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, Dr. Anna Kabika. Is that how you would pronounce it, Stacey? I guess Kabika, maybe. Kabika. Um, so she is one of the leaders of this like green keto. 
And basically what it does is it combines keto with the alkaline diet, which was basically a veggie rich, low meat diet that was, um, has been also well busted (laughs) in the scientific literature. Uh, the idea is that, um, by eating a lot of, well, let me just say this, um, eating a lot of vegetables is really, really healthy for the kidneys. The kidneys are what controls the pH of the body. And the phytonutrients in vegetables actually provide the raw materials for the kidneys to be able to really effectively do that job in in addition to like the mineral content and vitamin content. Um, So to uh, an alkaline diet is a vegetable rich diet. So let's, let's state that the alkaline diet um, was also a low meat diet. There's no evidence that meat is acidic at the level of the kidneys. Um, and if you just consume meat with lots of vegetables, there's, there's not that high meat consumption is not strenuous uh, on the kidneys. So um, what Dr. Kabika, again, I, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, um, has done has sort of combined that philosophy of tons and tons of vegetables, especially green vegetables, right, to keep the total carbs low. Um, and she's basically created a more plant-focused version of keto. And then because that to eat that high vegetable consumption does typically tip people up uh, um, to high carbs to actually maintain ketosis, is she uses supplements um, like ketones and intermittent fasting to maintain ketosis in this plan. Um, and I, I mean, I... Um, uh, and she's certainly not the only one. So there, there's other people who have sort of jumped on this. And so, I, I mean, I definitely think that the thought process in this is overall uh, good, right? So um, especially if you're looking at somebody who, say, is doing keto for refractory epilepsy, implementing it in such a way that you're getting this diversity of vegetables, that you're you know eating the rainbow, that you're getting a lot of fiber um, – you know, that is something that absolutely makes sense to me that would certainly, um, certainly prevent a subset of the, um, uh, detrimental and adverse effects of keto. There are still other concerns that I have about that, that this would not, right? So there's some of the biochemistry that keto triggers, um, especially in the low insulin environment means, and I'll refer back to um, our uh, insulin show, which um, I think we did maybe like nine, 10 months ago. We'll put a link in the show note. In that show, we talked about all of the non-metabolic roles of insulin and why we actually need to be making some insulin because it's important for thyroid health. It's important for muscle um, health. It's important for bone health. Um, it's important for hormone health. Um, it's important for things like um, cognition and memory. So there's all of these things that insulin does as a super hormone that are not related to just shuttling glucose into cells. And so I still look at these um, low-carbohydrate diets as, um, again, separating out therapeutic benefits for epilepsy or multiple sclerosis um, they have this fundamental flaw of not um, providing us with um, with nutrient sufficiency and missing out on some nutrients that our bodies really need biochemically, right? And nutrients that our microbiome really needs. We've already talked about. So it's um, it's an interesting thought into sort of trying to get the 
best of keto. The problem is the best of keto is not great. Um, there's been a couple of studies that shown that when you lose weight on a ketogenic diet, you lose more muscle per fat, per pound of fat than you do just um, reducing calories um, and eating sort of like balanced macros. So it's, it's really, I think, um, a fad diet that does not, um, it doesn't live up to its promises. And, um, my, my concern is that even though sort of green keto is, uh, is a, a really good thought into mitigating some of the problems with keto, it's not enough. Um, because really if we want to mitigate all of the problems with keto, we would add tons of vegetables, including some root vegetables and a little bit of fruit. And we'd also add a lot of protein and there you're not in ketosis anymore. But of course, that is how you mitigate the problems with keto. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant here, which is the part of any lifestyle or diet, whatever it's being called or sold as that requires the purchasing of anything to add to your diet means you are missing something. So if you are being told you need supplements or you need this thing to test your bodily ketones or you need X, Y, and Z, it means that it's not complete in and of itself. It cannot be a sustainable long-term lifestyle. Now, Sarah and I both take supplements because we know that we're not getting enough of whatever it is each of us takes in our vitamin diets. D right so you can yeah. you can test those things and you can take them but we're not here to tell you that you need to take this particular supplement of x y and z because it is missing from the thing that we're telling you works for a, a lifestyle for a healthy life or whatever and I think that's like what's been interesting about having a friend consume all of the keto stuff is like, it's helped me reflect on both where paleo has come and gone. Right. Mm -hmm. like we talk all the time about all of these different brands and products that have come about as a result of that movement a decade ago. And then to look at where her view of the world is today in the thing that she is focusing on. And she's like, she talks about how irritated she is that when she's listening to a podcast, she's like, they tell me I need to buy this. They tell me I need to buy this. Mm -hmm. they tell me, And I'm like, so if you add more vegetables to that mixture and reduce grains, maybe have some fruit like berries <laughs> that have some, you know, are not filled with, you know, nasty fructose and all of these things, right? Like you have some super nutrient rich berries, you have a moderate carbohydrate vegetable diet, then you're not keto. Like that's the thing that bothers me as this, this word of what it is and how people mm -hmm. are actually using it is, is very different. And so I'm like, okay, let's maybe let's use different words, which is where I think the next um, reference of a fat diet in the question is interesting to me because yeah. maybe we can all refer to it however you want, right? Like I love your description of the way that you choose to eat. You don't even 
necessarily use the word paleo all the time. You say you eat a low inflammatory, high nutrient dense diet. And I think Mm -hmm. that is super important for people to understand. It's a nuance. It doesn't sell well as a fad diet book, but it does really help health as it relates to a long-term lifestyle for people to figure out individually what works for them. Because what works for you is different than works for me, which is different for works for Matt. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just, uh, okay. There's my soup box. Okay. I'm, I'm stepping <laughs> off. <laughs> um, yeah, this next, so, um, Jackie also asked about the Pegan diet, which is the terminology spearheaded by Dr. Mark Hyman. And this, this one, I, you know, and I, I first started reading it, he has this whole rationale about the limitations of veganism and the limitation of paleo. So let's take the best of both of these and we'll call it pegan. So that's where the word pegan comes from. It's like paleo plus vegan. And, um, at first I thought, uh, you know, it's like, it's, um, plant-based paleo, not in the way that you and I talk about it. Um, you know, we talk about like more vegetables than a vegetarian and three quarters veggies, right? And these these other sort of um, uh, catchphrases for capturing the high vegetable con- consumption of um, our diets, but also the, you know what the science supports as being the healthiest diet. Um, and so then, as I dug into um, what Dr. Hyman is recommending, I went, "Oh, yep. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm." Yep. Oh, this is how I eat. Um, and, and so, um, what I, I'm actually going to, I'm going to preface this, um, conversation about sort of like his, what, what a pegan diet is, um, by also talking a little bit about my gut microbiome book, which I, I know it's not available for pre-order yet. And I know that everybody's really excited. I'm working on it as fast as I can. It's just a beast and it's, it's by far the hardest book I've ever written, uh, just because the the material is so dense, so translating that for the general public is uh, it's just such a huge challenge. But one of the things that I've decided to do with this book, it is not a paleo book. Um, so I am just going through the gut microbiome research and writing about what the research says, and there's no no branded diet in it whatsoever. And what I'm actually doing is building the principles of a healthy diet from the ground up based on uh, my, our microbiome health. And it turns out that when you build this diet from the ground up, it looks like, um, a very veggie rich paleo diet, uh, with that sort of Mediterranean olive oil type, healthy fat focus, um, moderate fat, moderate protein, high vegetable consumption, including fruit, including root vegetables. So it's, it's moderate carbohydrate and there's room, when you start looking from the microbiome perspective, there's some non-paleo foods that actually may be very beneficial for us. And that includes uh, lentils and chickpeas, um, as well as split peas. Uh, whether or not people consider that paleo is about, <laughs> about half of us do and about half of us don't. Um, so those particular legumes are particularly beneficial for the gut microbiome. There's room for gluten-free oats and rice, um, especially rice that has been cooked, cooled, and reheated because that increases the resistant starch. So those are like the – and then A2 dairy, right? So uh, goat dairy, sheep dairy, camel dairy, provided it's obviously well-tolerated. So those are like the non-paleo foods that are actually still really, really good for the gut microbiome. And and so I'm you know I'm, I'm, I'm writing this book without any – any diet dogma. 
um, behind it. So it, it really is just reflecting purely the scientific research. Um, and I want, I want you to keep those things in mind because as we go through Pegan diet, you're gonna be like, oh wait, is that the microbiome diet that Dr. Sarah just said? Cause yeah, it really is. Um, I, I think what Dr. Hyman has done is take some of these gray area foods that paleo has tr traditionally, at least the, the dogmatic, very rule-based version of paleo has eschewed these foods, but there are voices within our community, right? So um, Stephen Guinet, Dr. Guinet, um, oh, four or five years ago, wrote um, a series of posts about um, legumes and legume consumption in hunter-gatherers and basically made a case for lentils. Like he, he was really just, he wanted us to rethink lentils. And it was very much like the great potato debate of 2011. Like it, it really had that kind of, um, that kind of feel to it, uh, except for the part where there weren't other people kind of jumping to reinforce that message. So it, it never really went too far. Like it hasn't permeated the entire community the way potatoes have. Um, but there's, there's bits and pieces of this that there have been, um, uh, voices in, um, our community who have been saying, Hey, well, you know, maybe we need to right? um, uh, Paul Jaminet talking about rice in the, his version of paleo, which is called the perfect, um, health diet that, that has been on the fringe of paleo in these conversations, for years now. And um, Dr. Hyman has, in many ways, sort of pulled all of this together. So he talks about his pegan diet as being, right, no sugar, no uh, modern pesticides, you know, like nothing that has pesticide or antibiotics or hormones or GMO or vegetable oils or is like refined or manufactured in any way. And then he, he sort of recommends a, a high vegetable consumption um, not too much fruit. So he, um, you know, fruit's okay, but like dried fruit. So he kind of has this like low sugar version. Um, he talks about healthy fats. He talks about, um, limiting or avoiding dairy and then trying, he says goat or sheep dairy instead of cow. He doesn't go into the fact that that's a two beta casein instead of a one beta, beta casein, but that's where it's going. And he said, always organic and grass fed. That's because it's richer and conjugated conjugated linoleic acid, beneficial for the gut microbiome. Um, he um, recommends a four to six ounce serving of meat per meal, which um, if you are an average healthy person, absolutely would fulfill your protein needs. Uh, people who would need more protein than that are people who are um, trying to lose weight or people who are highly active or both. Um, so, uh, on average though, four to six ounces of meat per meal would absolutely meet our protein requirements. Um, he has a, a strong focus on food quality. He recommends avoiding all gluten. Uh, he recommends, um, gluten-free whole grains sparingly. So small portions of things like, rice, but he also sort of includes, um, quinoa and amaranth, right? Some pseudograins in that list. Um, he says lentils are, are the best, but only eat beans, starchy beans once in a while. Um, and then he, uh, totally recommends functional medicine, like on top of it. And I think what's interesting about those, uh, fundamentals is it's, um, I would actually have said it's sort of like the best, rather than best of vegan, I would have said the best of um, the plant-based diet, the trademarked version of it combined with paleo. 
um, it's it's a um, potentially uh, potentially still a little carb phobic um, in the avoidance of some of the higher sugar fruits and limiting starchy vegetables. Um, but it does increase, right, by, by including a little gluten-free grain, a little bit of legu um, legumes like lentils, does increase fiber content that way instead of increasing fiber content with more starchy vegetables. Um, and, like, overall, I think, I think what he's recognized is that there's a lot of message confusion within the paleo community, it's one of the reasons why I wrote Paleo Principles um, was to try to reestablish what standard paleo is in our community where there's, um, as, as we're growing, right, there's no central leadership in paleo. There's no one person who says that something is paleo or not. It's, it's really a grassroots diet, and it makes it different from all other diets because of that, um, because there's no board of paleo directors that evaluate the scientific literature and say, yes, eat this, no, eat that. And then, you know, update those recommendations as new research is performed. That doesn't exist right now in our community. And so there's, um, there's this, uh, this disadvantage where, as we were talking about at the top of the show, that means that there are voices in the paleo community that are not, um, highly informed people who are making recommendations that are not, um, they're, they're not evidence-led. They're not based on, on scientific evidence. And so what Dr. Hyman has sort of recognized is that there is, depending on where you get your information from, as you come into paleo, there's a lot of confusion. There are people who are still doing this very high meat consumption version of paleo, right? There's still that, um, uh, paleo as a meme, as opposed to paleo as a way of life, where you've got like the person taking the giant bite out of the, the big steak, right? And, and eating just, just bacon and eggs for breakfast and no fruit or vegetables, right? There's this, um, this, uh, misunderstanding of paleo as a very meat heavy diet that still permeates and, and permeates, uh, within paleo and exterior to paleo. And, um, what I've, our approach, our approach, Stacey, you as well, like uh, with the podcast, with our educational resources has been to try to correct the record in terms of what paleo is so that people coming into the paleo community, um, understand the importance of vegetables, understand the importance of eating snout to tail and nutrient density and seafood and understand where, um, you know, toxin concerns are valid versus not right. So understanding the difference between, avoiding gluten versus avoiding oxalates, for example. Um, and, and really just trying to, trying to create a evidence led robust scientific foundation for paleo to stand on so that people coming to the community are not adopting a fad version of paleo where they're just eating a ton of meat and bacon uh, and dark chocolate, but instead, you know, really eating uh, Stacey, as you said, a low inflammatory, high nutrient density diet, um, and really following what, um, what I think the paleo is, right? I mean, if you look at hunter gatherers, they on average eat between hundred and 200 different varieties of plants in their diet. You can probably at best get 50 different varieties of fresh plant foods in your grocery store. So really trying to 
correct the record. What Dr. Hyman has done is looked at those um, uh, communication challenges within the paleo community and has decided to rebrand and create a new thing with a new name that um, can, can be under his, you know, his umbrella, right? So he gets to become that person who says, yes, this is Pegan. No, this is not Pegan. And, and really it's, it's like a different solution to the challenges that paleo has right now as it, as it grows and kind of absorbs different alternative health communities and the different priorities that different alternative health communities bring to the paleo community. What Dr. Hyman has done is basically said, no, I'm, you know, here's my reading of the science. Here's what I think are really, you know, the, the, this is the way to eat. And I'm going to rebrand something. And, and basically like it's a, it's a fresh start and he's got such a huge audience and such a huge voice. He's going to be able to create a, community of people around him that are following Pegan. But I would argue that Pegan is a, um, is basically a, what I recommend as paleo, it's maybe a slightly too low carb version of what my recommendations are, um, with a little bit of flexibility for the occasional, right. Gluten-free grain or, or legume, right. It's, 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 um, it's taking the science and letting it inform our recommendations, which is exactly my approach to paleo. So um, it's interesting to me, but it, it's interesting not necessarily because there's some radical something in the recommendations. I, other than I think the limitation on uh, root vegetables is a little bit too low. I, I I think it's it's interesting to me because it's basically giving up. It's, it's, you know, it's basically like, ah, oh, paleo has become this unwieldy, unmanageable giant thing. And it's a, sh it's a ship now that's getting really hard to steer. Uh, let's just, let's just create a new thing and rebrand and, and, and go with this other thing. So, you know, in general, I think that, um, what Pegan is, is really um, standard paleo with room for self-experimentation. Um, if you read paleo principles and then you read Dr. Hyman's um, description on paganism, you'll see the alignment is like 98%. Um, but I, um, yeah, I don't, from a, it's really, it's about branding and I'm, I'm not sure what I think about that. I see the paleo community as being this, amazing group of people who are really invested in their health. And I, I don't want to just jump ship and say, okay, I'm the Pegan mom now, just so that I can um, have a different framework from which to say the exact same thing. I would far rather me personally um, stay, you know, thoroughly rooted and embedded in this community and help to, to continue to provide that, that scientific foundation for our choices and call out where influences from other alternative health communities that come into paleo are um, misled or nuanced and you know specifically beneficial for only a, a particular group of people, right? Like and and talk about context and nuance and make sure that our community is really well informed and understands why one food is great, why another food isn't, 
and all of the world of gray in between where foods can have pros and cons and might work for you and might not. And so be able to approach paleo in a um, not just a, a balanced way, not just a uh, science-led way, but in a non-dogmatic, non-rule-based way. So approaching paleo based on the knowledge base to be able to look at things with skepticism and also um, and also the, the things that do conform to that knowledge base, look at those things with um, like this full wholehearted embracing of the, the tenets of healthy living. I think that makes so much sense from the perspective of living in a non-dogmatic way, but using principles. And I think that is consistent with what we've been talking about on the show for years. I mean, if you look at the way that the paleo community has gone with Chris Cresser's paleo code and even Rob Wolf's wired to eat, and then you've got, like you said, Jaminé's perfect health diet, like you can point to endless resources and, and, you know, especially with Rob and Chris Cresser, who were kind of almost godfathers of the movement, right? Like, and I'm using air quotes when I say that, but they were part of paleo when it was early on and were both active in saying this is not just a meat-based diet, right? And then we're, where we are now, very much I see it the way that you've described it, Sarah, is your microbiome description is aligns shockingly to where our ancestry of healthy eating and our biology, which is the original basis of paleo comes from, like Mm -hmm. it was always hunter gatherers. It was never, you just go out and you only eat meat, right? Like there's all these, you know, news videos of a bunch of people going from CrossFit to a Brazilian steakhouse and eating endless meat and being like, ha ha ha, this is healthy. But the truth of the matter is, is all those people were also eating a lot of vegetables and, or they weren't really living to the tenants of paleo, as you call them. And I think it's a lot more difficult for people to wrap their mind around the idea of these are some guiding rules about food, but they're guiding and they're not hard and fast. And you need to figure out what works for you. And it might be that, you know, sugar is worse for some person, or it might be that alcohol is really bad. I mean, Mm -hmm. you don't even see alcohol on this list at all. Um, But I will say, having been on this travel trip and knowing that I need to keep my body in um, a state that optimizes my health and reduces inflammation as much as possible so that I can go from city to city to city every day and I can be active and I can eat food on the road and all of this kind of stuff. Like alcohol is not an option for me. I had a margarita in Arizona and that has been the only alcohol that I consumed this whole trip and I did not feel good after. And it's not a coincidence, right? So for me personally, alcohol is a huge factor when I'm looking at my health and yet it doesn't even show up on this list. Does that mean that I can have unlimited alcohol on Pegan? No. Do you know what? Like I just, I I feel like it's important for people to understand and, and I do like this and, you know, test to personalize your approach. That in and of itself, I feel like is just, that's the definition of the optimal diet, right? Like you can test your, you know, 
how your health is doing and then tweak from there. And the idea of building it base up the way you described your microbiome book, I've been talking to you for a long time about the work that you're doing right now. And I think that's such a accurate and well thought out descriptor of what you're doing. Like you're not defining or aligning it to any sort of, um, rule-based or fad diet or, you know, there's, there's no branding associated with it. You're simply looking at the science and you're saying, this is what the science says about health based on microbiome. And that is where we, at least myself have, have tried to think about food for a really long time. It's like, is this nourishing me or is it not? It's, it's not a matter of like, is, and then there's, an additional factor of, is it detrimental to my health? And we've, mm-hmm. we've talked about that kind of layered effect, right? And I think that gray area that we described, it's not necessarily detrimental unless I start going to large quantities and it reduces the good amount of things that I'm eating is where you can get benefit. And you see this in even in a keto diet where people say they have a carb up day or whatever, right? Like there's every single Uh, And I've talked to vegetarians and vegans who have, you know, some meat days and they just don't count it or whatever it is, right? Like, I think um, President Clinton described that he was a vegan except for when he ate meat, right? (laughs) And it was, I just, I feel like that humans who are all trying to eat our best lives, when we look at every single person out there, even the paleo experts, even Sarah and I, Sarah eats popcorn and I eat dairy. And it's not like the majority of the food that we're consuming. These are <laughs> occasions that occur. Wait, I eat popcorn for dinner. What are you talking about? No, wait, just <laughs> hang on. Hashtag sarcasm. Just making sure everyone understands. I do not eat popcorn for dinner. It's an occasional treat. But I mean, you're, you're right. We've, we've, my whole family does. And we've discovered that we are fine with corn. Also when corn's in season, like this time of year, once or twice, I will buy corn on the cob and we'll have corn on the cob. It's, um, it's not a foundational element of our diet, but it is something that we have occasionally as a treat because it's well tolerated. We all feel good when we eat corn and I'm making sure that it's organic heritage, um, uh, corn and, you know, heirloom varieties. And that's, you know, that's how I'm, that's part of the personalized approach. And you, I, I think I would trade corn for dairy. I think if I handled dairy, I would give up corn. I kind of think you have the better end of that because you get ice cream out of your end of the deal. Yes. I will say that being in the Southwest, no corn, no nightshades has not been the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. I, I just want to put my heart out there for all of the people working on AIP who live in the Southwest. Like it has been very difficult to find places to eat out and salads and bunless burgers can only take you so far. (laughs) So, um, that was my rant. I don't know. I, I guess I'm just still baffled at the idea that we are holding on to trying to put a label, trying to put specific words, I mean, specific rules around what everybody can or can't eat. Because I just feel like we are all individual people. We come from different um, genetic backgrounds. We come from different places that our ancestors ate and developed microbiome and genetics based on that of certain food types. And 
where Russ says he didn't, you know, find specific scientific um, studies that already exist to support that, we can look at regionally, we can look at hunter-gatherers, and we can look at people in Alaska who ate higher fat versus someone on the plains who didn't because of where they were and the environment they were in and what was available to them. And we can see that both thrived before modern food. And I think it's just as simple as getting back to basics, eating real food that supports health. And I think if we just keep reminding ourselves of that, whatever the label is, that's why we can look at Pegan and we can say, well, that looks like how I eat because it's simply like nutrient dense, real food. And the more that we really just have that mantra with ourselves, like, is it helping me get healthier? And if it's not, is it harming my health? Am I, am I using it in a way that develops um, social or emotional development for myself? And it's not just a vacuum. You know? like, okay, I said I was done with my rant. Now I'm done with it. <laughs> well, Stacey, before we wrap up the show, I need to, I need to tell you one very exciting thing that I realized while we were recording. Next week is our seven-year podcasting anniversary. What? I was like five years. No, let me add one. I think it's been more than that. <laughs> seven. Next. Next. Next episode marks seven years of podcasting. Do you have the seven-year itch? <laughs> uh, like I'm trying, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, spending time with other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I'm thoroughly, thoroughly dedicated in my, the paleo view podcast dedication that I use the word dedication twice in that sentence, which obviously means double the dedication. So dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the, all the dedicated. Wow, that's a very long time. Um, but also, I think interesting that here we are seven years later, and we're revisiting the principles that brought us here to begin with that changed both of our lives in terms of our energy, our health, our weight loss, like all of those things that indicate um, healthy living. And seven years later, and the science is still pointing to the guiding principles that got us here to begin with. So that's something. I think it's amazing because also I don't see us running out of topics to cover anytime soon, uh, which, which just, I think it is testament to how important it is to approach diet and lifestyle. I'm going to wrap up, you know, like sleep and stress management activity and all of those conversations, uh, sort of like healthy eating and living I, I think it's so important to approach this as an education rather than a soundbite. And what we've done on this podcast for seven years is an excellent example of why that's important because our listeners, they're a, well, they're the, obviously the best people and, uh, they, right. They are the people who are engaged at this nuanced detailed level who are helping to then educate the people around them and really help to, to take this entire community of millions of people um, and hopefully keep steering this ship, right? So this is a community effort. We're all doing this together. And uh, I am so, so grateful for 
not just this platform to be able to communicate uh, with our listeners, but for our listeners, because they they are our people. They are our community. They're each other's community. And it's awesome. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I've met some of our listeners on the road. I have not been to Paleo FX or a book tour in quite a while. So it's been a long time since I've been able to connect to some of our listeners. But um, with this road trip and the events that I've been hosting, I've been able to connect with some of them and have that same love and affection and just deep, deep connection that seven years having a relationship with someone will provide. So um, I would love to see some of you. My last event is upcoming. I think it's this coming week. Um, I'm having a little bit of like what day it is um, in Tampa, Florida. So you can find that um, the best place is just Instagram. I have a highlight for RSVPing to events, but um, I'm doing an event in Tampa, Florida with Jen from Predominantly Paleo and Elena from Grazed and Enthused, who you wrote um, a cookbook with as well. Mm -hmm. So the three of us are all doing the last event of our summer of road trip in Tampa, Florida. So if you're remotely in that area, come by because it will probably be the last event that I do for a long time outside of the D.C. area, um, just because we don't usually travel. And if I do, I'm, I'm doing something else. So Thank you so much, listeners, for being here for seven years, for showing up, whether it's at an event or each week to download and be with us on this podcast. We adore you, and I hope that we can come up with something clever for next week now that you've figured it out. It's usually <laughs> after the fact, and we're like, oh, wow, that was 350. We we could have mentioned Whoops. it. <laughs> Whoops. We missed a milestone. Um, we have, uh, I think we've got a fun topic planned for next week something we've never done on the show before. I I think I think that's a good way to celebrate. We got it. Awesome. Thank you so much listeners and we will be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Hello, listeners. I bring to you Solid Wi-Fi, episode 362, <laughs> actually. Matthew, right? Nope, 363. What? Hold on. Because I literally just posted, well, this is obviously, we're going to restart the show. Because um, 362 is what this week. Oh, that's the... Um, that's the check-in show. I was like, I just posted 361 on Instagram. I know. <laughs> That's because yeah. there's another show. You're like, I, I promise I know how to add one. <laughs> okay. There you go for more bloopers. Okay, ready? Yeah. Good. No, it's not good morning, listeners. Wow. I should have coffee. No, and then I just said should. What is wrong with me? <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, I'm ready this time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.